0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Join me in welcoming back Father Eric Bergman.
1: The Lord be with you. And with your Let us pray. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within thy wounds, hide me. Permit me not to be separated from thee. From the wicked, defend me. At the hour of death, call me, and bid me come to thee, that with all the saints, I may praise thee forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. By way of introduction, Melanie gave you a bit of an introduction indru- 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 about me, uh, through the little bio that I sent down to her, and, uh, but I'm going to, rather than talk about myself uh, and my background, I'm going to tell you about the sacraments, since that's the subject of our talk tonight. Uh, I'll begin with a story about uh, Bishop uh, John Doherty, who uh, was the Auxiliary Bishop of Scranton. Uh, I was ordained when Bishop uh, Joseph Martino was the Bishop of Scranton, and uh, Bishop Doherty is actually the one who ordained me. And uh, one day I was in a uh, clergy gathering, we had a clergy day in Scranton, and I was walking up to greet uh, Bishop Martino and Bishop Doherty, and Bishop Doherty said to Bishop Martino, here comes the only man in northeastern Pennsylvania who has received all seven sacraments. (laughs) And so I'll I'll explain to you how that happened. I was baptized in the Episcopal Church uh, on uh, the 24th of March 1971. My uh, father and mother lived down in uh, Morristown, Tennessee. My dad had gone to UTK and uh, had got his masters there and uh, we moved up to Pennsylvania when I was actually not even two years old yet. So I was baptized in the Episcopal Church and uh, it was a valid baptism. When I came to the church it did not have to be uh, uh, rebaptized or conditionally baptized. The second sacrament I received uh, was when I got married. I was uh, 25 years old, and I married uh, Christina Berrio. and uh, we, as Melanie said, now have uh, eight children. We're actually expecting our ninth on July the sixth. So, we've been uh, uh, married nearly uh, 19 years, and so so obviously you can figure out the math. We married in 96. Then, uh, in about 2004, it became clear to me I was supposed to become a Catholic, so, we began catechism under uh, Father Charles Connor, and if you watch uh, EWTN, you've probably seen quite a bit of him. He was our catechist, and my dad actually was received into the church the same day. And my son, in a sense, I mean, he was only a little boy, and he had to make the profession of faith because he was baptized Episcopalian too. But my dad and I were received into the church, but before we could be received in the church, we had to go to confession, right? So the third sacrament was confession, and uh, I had to confess, uh, you know, obviously all the sins of my life, that was 34 years worth. So so that was a long confession. And then uh, uh, on uh, about a week later or so, we went and Bishop Martino decided that he would confirm us and uh, give us our first Holy Communion on the uh, Feast of All Saints. So, so on uh, All Hallows' Eve uh, 2005, we were received into the church. We received the Sacrament of Confirmation. I took the saint's name. Saint Augustine, because he too was in his 30s when he became a Catholic, and uh, uh, then we received our first Holy Communion. And as I said, it was the uh, a number of people came into the church with me, about 50. They were from my former Episcopal parish. We became Catholic together, and so on that particular day, All Saints' Eve, 2005, uh, 50 people became Catholic together. Now, the the one that you, is the strange one, of course, is the sacrament of sick. Why is a guy my age? Uh, Received Sacrament of the Sick. Well, I, I had a, uh, uh, a medical event that, that was, uh, I had a condition that had been misdiagnosed for 11 years, uh, beginning when I was at Yale University, so don't think those people are that smart. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I was uh, taken to the hospital and uh, I had to receive Last Rites, uh, the, the Sacrament of the Sick. And that was in uh, January of 2006. And so, Uh, The seventh, finally, was when I uh, was ordained uh, to the diaconate on uh, the, literally, the 36th anniversary of my baptism. Not planned. Uh, The rescript came back in February from the Holy Father, Pope Benedict. He gave me dispensation uh, from celibacy for priests of the Roman Rite and uh, of the Latin Church. And so I was uh, ordained. Uh, To the deaconate on the 24th of March, and the interstices for those of us who are converts to the church are dispensed with, and so I was only a deacon for four weeks before I was ordained a priest, and I was ordained to to the priesthood on uh, the 21st of April 2007. So uh, there you have it. Uh, Anybody else here been received all seven sacraments? (laughs) All right. So so. uh unique uh, in northeastern pennsylvania but i know it's happened to a bunch of others cuz cuz uh uh more and more we're seeing uh uh permanent deacons uh, ordained and and also indeed uh uh in the ordinariate we have uh, had about 60 ordinations 60 ordinations in the last 3 years uh uh 57 of whom are uh, uh married so, uh, uh, I'm not going to be that unique uh, in, a, in a couple of years. No. Now, uh, the sacraments, and that's what I'm here to talk about, obviously, are the sure means of grace. And so, I'm going to read to you Matthew 28, uh, verses 16 to 20. I don't know if anybody brought his Bible along, but if you, if you do, you can read with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, I am with you always to the close of the age. The sacraments are the fulfillment of this promise, of this statement. And he does this through the establishment of his church. And we call the uh, Feast of Pentecost the birthday of the church. But obviously he laid the groundwork well before that because on Holy Thursday he instituted both the priesthood and the Eucharist. And so... In your priests you have men who stand in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, who stand as alter Christus as another Christ. And they are the means by which we receive the sure means of grace, particularly the source and summit of our faith, the Holy Eucharist, by which Christ is made present to us body, blood, soul, and divinity. So that we see in the church, in his priests, and in the Holy Eucharist, the fulfillment of the promise, lo! I am with you always to the close of the age. Not merely spiritually, which was a misunderstanding that I had when I was uh, a Protestant. I just sort of tried to imagine Jesus sort of hanging out over my shoulder. Couldn't see him, but I was sure he was there. And probably was still in me from my baptism. Uh, But in the sacraments, we have him here not merely spiritually, which is true. I wasn't wrong about that when I was a Protestant. He is spiritually here with us, but he's also here corporeally corporeally in the Holy Eucharist, corporeally in his priests, corporeally in the church, corporeally present in you, all of the baptized, right? So this is the perpetuation until he comes again in glory of the mystery of the Incarnation. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that isn't something that happened in the past. It's still happening today. It is the reality for all eternity. He is coming to us in humility with power until he comes in power with judgment. He is coming to us in humility with power until he comes to us in power with judgment. So the sacraments are truly God with us, the fulfillment of the prophecy Emmanuel, God with us. This is what the sacraments are. Now the purpose The purpose is the restoration of the original union that Adam and Eve squandered in the fall when they disobeyed the command that they were given to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're all familiar with the story of the fall, and so I'm not going to read that long passage from the book of Genesis. But I want you to recall it with me and remember how after their disobedience, after the fall, Uh, man and woman, Adam and Eve, hid themselves. And this is something that is true of us to this day. This is what we've inherited from the fall. We hide from God. And in the church and his sacraments, Jesus seeks us out. You recall how immediately after the fall, the uh, man and woman, Adam and Eve, felt shame. What did they do? They figured They sowed fig leaves, right, around them to cover themselves up. They felt shame. But in the church, Jesus takes away our shame in the blood of the cross, which we access through the sacraments of Holy Mother Church. Therefore, we should look to the developments in salvation history that have issued in this reunion, this restoration of the original grace that was imparted to man and woman at the moment of their creation. This original grace, as I say, which they squandered when they disobeyed God's command. The sacraments are the restoration of God's imminence to man, imminence to man after man's expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Remember how close they were? They're wandering around the garden together, right? And and he says, where are you? He knew where they were. What did you do? He knew what they did. Right? But he was close to them. But after the fall, man and woman, Adam and Eve, are expelled from the Garden of Eden. They are expelled from paradise. And what do the sacraments accomplish, obviously, except us going back into paradise, our entry into paradise. What does Jesus say to the repentant thief? Truly, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? So the sacraments are the means by which we return, Uh, We are reunited with the God of grace and we return to paradise from which we were expelled at the fall. So we think about uh, how this process of restoring God's eminence to man uh, didn't happen immediately. It happened uh, throughout the uh, Old Testament. So first, what did we have? We had the Ark of the Covenant. There was no eminence of God There was no imminence of God until the ark lived in the presence of the people of Israel. Now, we know that God came to Moses privately in the burning bush, but uh, the burning bush that was not consumed. He came to him, but the imminence of God for the entire people, for the entire people of Israel, this begins to be restored with the ark of the covenant and the tent of meeting as they went through the wilderness, right? And Moses put the law in there. They carried it about until they crossed the Jordan and into the Promised Land. And they were in the Promised Land for a long time, and they had the Ark with them. They lost it a little bit, you know, from the Philistines because they were unfaithful. But eventually, God permitted the erection, the building of the temple. And the temple became the place of God's imminence for the people of Israel in Jerusalem. So uh, God's presence, the presence, was in uh, Jerusalem. And then, you know, in 587 BC, it got destroyed. But we read, read the Book of Ezra, Nehemiah, how they all came back, and they rebuilt the temple. And so God was again present, imminently present, with his people in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. But what separated man? Yes, there was an imminent presence, but what separated man from uh, the Holy of Holies? The curtain, which we heard about today in the Passion narrative. And only one man went past the curtain once a year for a very short amount of time, and then immediately left. But we see in the tearing of the curtain, that separated man from God, we find we have finally access to the Father. Access to the Father is accomplished by the sacrifice of the Son. Once the sacrifice of the Son is complete, right? he says it is finished and he breathes his last and immediately the curtain is torn and we have access to the father. Now the exclamation point on this comes in the destruction of the temple by Titus in the year 70 AD. Uh, Remember the words of the Jews who are uh, uh, demanding Jesus' crucifixion. What did they say? Let his blood be on us and on our children. That doesn't mean Jews today. It means literally us and our children the two generations as jesus promised there are people standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of god coming in power what happened the destruction of jerusalem his prophecy was fulfilled he said when you see the desolating sacrilege standing where it ought not to be let the reader understand what was the desolating sacrilege it was gentile armies And what did the Christians do? They fled to Pella. They were saved. And what happened after that? After the Christians had left, Titus came, destroyed the city. He actually killed, uh, it was a horrific genocide, uh, uh, crucified uh, a million people. 1.1 million people died in the Jewish war. The entire province of Judea was deforested. They cut down every single tree to crucify the Jews, there were concentric circles of uh, uh, people on crosses, every single person who tried to leave the city he killed, horrific war as Jesus said, the worst conflagration ever to be or ever will be, it's already happened, it's already happened. And his destruction of the temple, we note, has been final, the sacrifice of the mass the representation of the holy sacrifice on the altar of the cross on Calvary, this makes the animal sacrifices unnecessary. And therefore, note that the temple has not been rebuilt. Those sacrifices of blood and goats which cannot take away the sins of men, they will never resume. The temple will never be rebuilt because we have the one holy sacrifice of Calvary represented to us every time we assist at the holy sacrifice of the mass. And what Jesus says to us is, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. God is present wherever the church is present. God actually makes his home in us. Because what we, what do we do? We actually receive him, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Those of us who are baptized then have access to the life that Jesus promises us through the Holy Eucharist. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. Right? So we receive, through the sacraments, God himself. We begin to be incorporated into the mystery of the Trinity. The sacraments, however, remind us that we have to respond to God's initiative. God initiates, we respond. God, in Jesus Christ, pours his life out for us, and we, the church, his body, respond in kind to the love given for us, in the same way that the Father pours out his love for the Son, and the Son pours out his love for us for the Father. We see this reflected in the relationship between Christ, the head, and his body, the Church. So therefore, we actually have to do something. The sacraments mean we have to do something. We have to respond. We enter into the life of the Trinity to the degree that we pour ourselves out in the same way that we witness this exchange between the Father and the Son. If we pour ourselves out in the way that the Father and the Son pour themselves out eternally for one another, we will then be able to enter into the life of the Blessed Trinity. Graces proceed insofar as we receive the sacraments with the proper dispositions. And this of course is scriptural too, so if you have your Bibles I'm going to uh, have you open to First Corinthians chapter 11. And this is a passage with which you're probably familiar, I hope. Uh, but if not, I'll uh, read it to you. This is the 11th chapter of St. Paul's epistle uh, to the Corinthians, the first epistle to the Corinthians, 11th chapter beginning at the 27th verse. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we may not be condemned along with the world." This demonstrates the Church's expectation that as we enter into the sacraments, we enter into them with the correct disposition. And if we do not have the correct disposition, we cannot receive them. Right. So with, with for example, Holy Communion, if you have not made the profession of faith, you may not receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. If you are not living in a state of grace, if you are living in a state of mortal sin, you cannot receive Holy Communion. Is this exclusionary? Not in the least. This is merciful. That is why some of you are ill and some have died. The church refrains from giving people Holy Communion who are living in a state of mortal sin, refrains from giving people Holy Communion who have not made the profession of faith, because she doesn't want them to die. She isn't excluding them. She's not using it as a weapon. She loves them dearly and desires life for all men and women. So to say, no, I won't give you communion, isn't to exclude them from life. It's saying, I don't want to kill you. We have to have the right disposition. In the same way that if a couple came to me and wanted to be married, and we'd done the rehearsal, and on the day of the wedding they showed up drunk, what I Marry them? No. They don't have the correct disposition. And I can't know if the consent they're about to offer to one another before God is actually valid. For all the sacraments, i have just given you two examples here, but for all the sacraments, we have to have the correct dispositions. Would a priest baptize a man who wouldn't renounce Satan? No. We have to respond properly to the invitation of Christ. He pours himself out for us, we pour himself out to him. Now the counterfeit sacraments help us to reveal what the sacraments demand of us, how participation in them requires that we enter into the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So remember, as we are entering into the life of the Blessed Trinity, that means that we and I'm going to talk about this in my second presentation on the 14th about uh, Christian divinization, but as we uh, are divinized, as we uh, become gods, as we become like God, we are entering into the redemptive work of Jesus Christ because we begin to unite our sacrifices to the one sacrifice of Christ on the altar of the cross. We actually begin to participate in the redemption of the world. So if we think about the counterfeit sacraments that don't require any sacrifice, uh, we see how uh, the sacrifice is revealed in itself, of its nature. So for example, what is the counterfeit counterpart to the sacrament of Holy Communion? Drunkenness. What do we desire in Holy Communion but union with Christ and the elation that comes from that? What does the devil give us? Inebriation. He doesn't give us elation, he gives us inebriation. And whereas uh, that inebriation uh, proceeds by uh, consumption, the elation that we get from Holy Communion proceeds from our sacrifice. We go to the altar. In my parish, we get on our knees and uh, the good shepherd feeds the sheep. They assume the posture of one who is to be executed in all humility and the Lord does not give them death, but his very life. But before he gives them that life they assume the posture of those who are condemned so uh, drunkenness doesn't require that at all they don't have to do anything at all they just consume more and more liquor until they get inebriated elation proceeds from the sacrifice inherent to receiving Holy Communion with the correct disposition so the same could then be said of all the other sacraments If we think about Uh, marriage and the sacrifice that is required uh, in order to pour oneself out completely not just one's mind uh, not just one's heart but one's entire body including one's fertility uh, we see that sacrifice is inherent to the nature of the sacrament and what does the devil do to counterfeit it? He gives adultery, fornication and sodomy none of which are sacrificial in their nature. They are all consumptive. They take rather than give. They use. They use rather than build up. The sacrament of the sick. The priest comes and is present with us, anoints us, hears our confession, gives us viaticum, spends time with us, gives us the strength that we need for the journey. He is Incarnate to the dying. What does the devil give us? Euthanasia. If he's suffering, kill him. Don't spend time with him. That would be too much work. Give him a pill and tell him to off himself. Instead of uh, sanctity, which we receive through the sacrament of holy baptism the sanctity that washes away not only original sin but all our actual sins, what does the world give us? What does the devil give us? Sanctimoniousness, condemnation, judgment. doesn't require any sacrifice at all. All it requires is that we be able to look upon others as our servants and we as their masters. Whereas in baptism sanctity requires that we come as one who serves. For the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Confirmation, we receive an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the strength to become soldiers of Christ. The world gives us mere affirmation and building up self-esteem. Praise, even though we didn't do anything. (laughs) And, of course, ordination gives us the means of grace, the man is configured to be more closely configured to our Lord Jesus Christ, and he becomes an instrument of grace, God's hand in the world. The world gives us, the devil gives us expertise and tries to fool us that we can be saved through the greatness of our knowledge We don't have to be saved. We can save ourselves if we just learn enough. All right? So we see that in all of these counterfeit sacraments, they require actually very little effort and all kinds of conceit. In the actual sacraments, they require lots of effort and truckloads of humility. Now, the effect of entering into the sacraments properly is the transformation of the spiritual, the social, even, indeed, the physical environment in which we live. Entering into the sacraments, you see, shows the degree to which we are willing to suffer for and with others rather than demanding that others suffer for us. All right? And I think that that we can... uh, we can look at the world around us and uh, look at those parts of the world that have been formed by the church and have not been lost to other religions and we see that the physical environment in those parts of the world is far more attractive than those parts of the world that have not been won for the cross or have been lost. Uh, So for example, talk to any soldier who served in Iraq. This was one time, of course, uh, a Christian uh, nation. Uh, Our Chaldean Catholic brothers uh, continue to suffer over there, Uh, people of the Syrian Catholic Church. Uh, But they're uh, a, a distinct minority there. And what did the soldiers? Uh, if you've talked to any when they came back uh, what did they talk about a lot so often was the ugliness of it and how full every street was with garbage why was it so easy for them to blow up IEDs everywhere because it blended in the place is a dump why does it look like that because the physical transformation occurs the physical environment is transformed when people are living in the sacraments when they are pouring themselves out for their brothers it has effect not only on their souls not only on the society where we witness an increase in comity and love also in the actual environment in which they live the place begins to look beautiful the actual physical environment begins to look beautiful. So we are servants in the mold of that quote I just gave you from Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are not masters after the model of Caiaphas. Uh, remember what did Caiaphas say? It's expedient that one man should die. An innocent man it's expedient that one man should die for the people. right? He demands that the innocent die. But what Christians do is quite the opposite. We suffer for the innocent. Indeed, we suffer even for the guilty, rather than require that they suffer for us. And what do we see happening in uh, the Middle East right now? The precise opposite of the message of the gospel. Those who are their masters in the the parts of Syria and Iraq that are controlled by ISIS, in the parts of Nigeria and Libya, for that matter, that are controlled by ISIS, what do they require? That the people subject to them suffer for them. The precise opposite of what a Christian ruler does, St. Louis, for example, a willingness to suffer for them, not requiring that his people suffer for them, rather pouring himself out to suffer for his people. The precise opposite of what we see occurring right now in the Middle East, it's in the modern day. So, that is, entering into the sacraments is to have the proper disposition. It must be a free act of the will. It must be voluntary. It must be voluntary. To enter into the sacraments with the correct disposition is to enter into love voluntarily. We love voluntarily. Just as Jesus of his own volition poured himself out, so those who are entering into a sacrifice do the same thing. No one can be coerced into the celebration of the sacraments. This is why. A shotgun, have you ever seen that horrible movie, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? (laughs) (laughs) If there were a more anti-Catholic movie in terms of anti-sacrament, I can't think of one off the top of my head. But you know, the ending scene, first the girls get kidnapped, right? Then they're made to live in this place and then the fathers come to get them. And what do the fathers do? They stand behind the brides with shotguns. It's a movie that ends, the happy ending is a shotgun wedding for seven couples. (laughs) All right? This isn't love. (laughs) And if those people were baptized, those marriages are not sacramental because they were forced into them. The sacrifices that we offer, if they are truly to be described as loving, are offered voluntarily. so with so many catholics in this country you know we're one quarter of the population about uh, in a nation of uh, 330 million people 70 million people and that doesn't include the ex-catholics the ones we've lost that's the second largest religious group in the nation you know is ex-catholics the largest religious group in this country are catholics 70 million 70 million catholics and uh one quarter of the population. Why? Why, with so many with access to the sacraments, why has this nation not been converted? And the answer, uh, I think, is in the history of the church here in the United States. It bears noting, as we think about the history of the evangelization efforts of the church, as the church has gone out into the world and converted peoples. What did, what did I, I started with Matthew 28. Do you say convert to individuals? No. He said, convert the nations. He said, convert the nations. Our objective is not to get all kinds of people to have an individual relationship with Jesus. The sacramental life has not only the uh, vertical part of the cross, it has also the horizontal, that loving sacrificial obligation that we have to our neighbors, right? So it bears noting that in the United States, this is an anomaly historically. Normally, when the church enters into a nation, it converts the nation. Into which it enters, think historically about how nations have been converted. now, Rome was converted sort of from the bottom up, but there were other nations uh, like England that were converted from the top down, where the king converted, and then everybody uh, uh, it became a mass uh, uh, baptism, uh, or perhaps our blessed mother helped in the conversion you know that uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe came in 1531. By 1541, 10 years later, 9 million people had been baptized. It was like Pentecost every day for 10 years. 3,000 people a day for 10 years became Catholic. So the normal thing that happens when the Catholic Church enters a nation is it converts the people. And in the United States, that hasn't happened. You see, after the large waves of Catholic immigration, the church quickly retreated behind the walls of the fortress. And remember what uh, Jesus said when he was talking to Peter? What he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right. So who's behind the gates? The devil we the church are supposed to be on the offense and this is what has happened this is how a nation is converted when the church is on the offense as was the case in places like england uh, like mexico like the philippines uh, nations are converted when the church goes on the offense goes into the world goes into that nation and makes incredible sacrifices on behalf of the unbelievers and converts them. Think about St. Isaac Jogues. What happened to him? You know the story of St. Isaac Jogues, North American martyrs? He came uh, from New France, uh, came down into what is today uh, New York. There's a beautiful shrine up there, if you ever want to it uh, in Orisville. And he came into uh, uh, the, amongst the Huron and had much success. And then he decided well, we need to convert the Mohawks too. They weren't as receptive. And uh, uh, they uh, captured him, made him run the gauntlet. And at the end of running the gauntlet, the squaws, that is the women, chewed off his fingers. When I celebrate the mass, after I touch the host, I don't uh, separate my fingers in our use. And uh, uh, this way I won't contaminate the chalice with uh, my uh, fingers and put the body of blood the body of uh, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ on the outside of the chalice. So I keep my fingers together. Well, the Indians noticed that. And so when they tied him down, the squaws chewed off his four fingers and his thumbs. Well, amazingly, he recovered from those injuries and Dutch Protestants helped him from Albany down the river to New Amsterdam. This is before the English had stolen it from the Dutch. And he... uh, was spirited across to France, where Pope Urban declared him a living martyr, the only man so designated ever, because he saw his hands. And he was feted by the queen, and but he said, I need to go back, because they aren't converted. So he went back, and they killed him. Well, the Mohawk are Catholic today, all right? That sacrifice, that outpouring of himself, issued in the conversion of people whom we can charitably describe as barbaric. So what happened in the United States? Something different. If you are familiar with uh, the nativist history in this country, the Know Nothings, the people who were really anti-Catholic in terms of the immigration waves that began in the 1830s, uh, uh, beginning from Ireland, but then uh, from other uh, European nations like uh, Germany, uh, uh, many many uh, Catholics came from Germany, and we, then we had many much Catholic immigration from uh, places in southern Europe like Italy, uh, but in 1844, uh, there were uh, terrible riots in the city of Philadelphia. The, uh, the uh, Catholics became incensed because they were not being allowed to be taught in the public schools with the Douay-Rheims Bible and were being forced to be taught out of the King James Version of the Bible, which as you know leaves out seven books. and uh, there was uh, some uh, conflagration began in Kensington. It moved down into uh, Philadelphia proper. Kensington and Philly by the time, by the, at that time were different cities. And uh, St. Augustine's Church was burned down. One of the uh, largest libraries in the nation at the time was completely destroyed. And uh, these riots continued. Uh, the, they sort of flared up again in the summer of 1844. And the bishop's response was to begin the parochial uh, school system the state's response was to make Philadelphia uh, county all one big city and they said every every uh, uh, municipality in the state has to have its own police force Uh, but the the uh, church's response was to uh, create the catholic ghetto and create the uh, uh, parochial school system whereby catholic students would be separated from uh, Protestant students or uh, secular students, and every uh, the every the bishops of the United States decided that every parish in America ought to have its own school, and tuition should be free. And maybe some of you are old enough to remember or have grown up in places like that, where tuition, for for example, in the Diocese of Scranton, was free until 1995. That people could go to Catholic education and receive free Catholic education for nothing. The problem was that the uh, erection of the Catholic ghetto really fostered an orientation of preservation. People died in the nativist riots. They were killed. You know who they were? The Protestant soldiers who were trying to protect the Catholic church. No Catholics were killed in the nativist riots, but the Catholics were horrified that they would be treated this way. And of course, it is horrifying that, that the nativists would want to come down, burn down your church, and destroy one of the most valuable libraries in the entire nation simply because you were Catholic. That, that's horrifying. But the response on the part of the people should have been, there's something wrong with them. They need to be converted. We need to see a transformation of them spiritually, socially, physically. Instead, what happened all over the country, and maybe some of you grew up in some of these urban Catholic ghettos where uh, everything around you uh, was Catholic Uh, the Catholic uh, parish was the center of uh, the community and uh, everybody you knew was Catholic the shift away from preservationism began with the Americanism heresy and I'm not going to get into that but uh, Bishop Ireland uh, was a main proponent of it and he was the guy that uh, when a married priest presented himself to him in St. Paul said, I have no use for you. He wasn't actually married anymore. He was a widower, but he had three kids. So Bishop uh, Ireland said, I have no use for you. And uh, that man was Alexis Toth, who then took 300,000 people out of the Catholic Church. And uh, so Bishop Ireland is sort of derisively called the father of orthodoxy in America for his uh, lack of appreciation for Catholic unity and diversity. So anyway, (laughs) Bishop Ireland, same man, is the leading proponent of this heresy Americanism. Look it up, but basically, It tended towards assimilationism, adopting the orientation of those around us. And this uh, tendency towards assimilating, Catholics assimilating into the culture and simply adopting the American way, accelerated after the 1928 election in which Al Smith, uh, the very first Catholic uh, uh, candidate for president, ran. And the uh, time was a very ugly one. Again... KKK uh, had a, a resurgence, that is the Ku Klux Klan, there were burning crosses all over the place, and uh, uh, Smith was derided, his candidacy was derided, uh, uh, his candidacy for president was derided simply because he was a Catholic. And what the lesson that came out of that was again the wrong lesson. The, the, the natives' riots taught the Catholics to, to be preservationist, and to go inside and protect what they had. Uh, the, the election 1928 taught them that, well, if we're going to get along in this country, we need to become just like everybody else. Now, this saw its uh, apex, its uh, fulfillment in the election 1960 when John Fitzgerald Kennedy forswore his faith in order to get elected. He went before the Houston Ministerial Association, you know, and said, oh, yeah, I'm a Catholic, but it's not going to affect anything about the way I govern this country. All right And he said that in order to get elected of course we know that 200,000 dead people voted in Chicago, but there were a lot of other people <laughs> there were a lot of other people who uh, voted for Kennedy, who thought that they could, as good Democrats, they could vote for him, even though he was a Catholic, right? Because he had uh, forsworn his faith. So uh, having gone away from preservation and a desire for integration, in America, uh, integration into the life of, of this nation, uh, the, the uh, church in many ways chose assimilation. The goal in both, preservation and assimilation, the goal in both was the avoidance of suffering. If we think of both these paradigms, preserve ourselves, build the Catholic ghetto and live behind the fortress walls or become like everybody else so I just fit in, The objective is not sacramentally pouring oneself out for the life of the world. The objective is, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to suffer. The sacraments require that we suffer. Uh, These were uh, objectives that were ultimately anti-sacramental. The goal, instead, should have been evangelization. And unfortunately, uh, this is still not the goal in many ways. The 60s and the 70s saw the Catholic ghetto collapse because of the white flight. And again, what did the white flight seek to do? Preservation. They didn't flee out of the ghetto to go evangelize all the people in the suburbs. They went there to preserve what they had. While at the same time, simultaneously, remember, Teddy Kennedy. After Roe v. Wade condemned the decision, said it was horrible. Teddy Kennedy did that. Many Catholic politicians followed President Kennedy's lead and forswore the faith in order that they could be assimilated. And we still have evidence of that a couple miles down the road with people like uh, Mrs. Pelosi. The century, this that century, our century today, the twenty-first century, has seen the shuttering of thousands, literally thousands of parishes in the northeast and in the Rust Belt as you go across uh, the Great Lakes, even while people still live in the neighborhoods where the churches are closed. If you had a strategy for evangelization and you had missions already set up in mission territory, closing them is the last thing you do. In fact, in the Diocese of Allentown, nine <coughs> parishes uh, Uh, Went against the order uh, that the bishop had given for them to be suppressed, and Rome agreed with them. And uh, there's a church that I, uh, not too far from where I grew up in South Bethlehem, uh, that was the old Windish parish. That is the Slovenian parish. And uh, the Holy See said, "You have to keep it open because you're going to need property to do evangelization." So the parish is suppressed. the The Pope, uh, the Holy See, allowed the suppression of the actual parish. St. Joseph's Church uh, in South Bethlehem. But they required that the church remain open. So Rome, Rome thinks differently very often than American bishops. So the physical environment often reveals to us who is most in need of evangelization. Remember that part I talked about Baghdad? Since the faith implemented changes the landscape. So think about our nation, and the places where the physical landscape looks the worst, those are precisely the places the church has abandoned in the last 40 years. Those are the precise places the church has abandoned in the last 40 years. These dual paradigms of preservation and assimilation have created the perfect storm for the abandonment of the most materially and spiritually poor. Assimilation demands acquiescence to the establishment. And preservation requires the rejection of the implications of the incarnation, the necessity of God's imminence among people who are lost. If we are going to be God incarnate for people who are in need of salvation, we can't minister to them eight hours a day. I love Catholic social services. The largest, the largest charity in the world is the Catholic Church. But if We are going to minister to people in need. We have to be like Jesus was to them, present with them. It's not the same when you go at 9 in the morning and then leave 5 at night. How would your spouse like that? I love you, but I'm only going to spend eight hours a day with you, because I'm too scared to be with you the other 16. It exhibits a loss of confidence in the grace of the sacraments and a concomitant hesitancy to suffer on behalf of the lost. If we aren't willing to live with them, how much can we possibly love them? If we aren't willing to live with them, how much can we possibly love them? Now, the rise of secular humanism will tempt us to adopt again the preservationist fortress mentality and it will lead others to fold and become assimilated. But this won't convert our nation. This is not the means by which our brothers and sisters in the faith are going to be converted. So what is our mission? Rather than preservation or assimilation, uh, we have to think of a third way. What is our mission? This question must always be our focus. The answer I believe is the formation of Catholic communities in the midst of those who need to be converted. This is not a new idea. It's not a radical, I mean it's a radical idea, but it's not my idea. Uh, We see it in uh, places like the Bronx where Mother Teresa sent a bunch of sisters, right? But all she sent was sisters. Uh, She didn't send any laymen. She sent the people that she had available to her. But what we really need I think are Uh, laymen willing like St. Isaac Jogues to go into the midst of the new barbarians and live with them and love them pour themselves out sacramentally to be the great sacrament to be the church in the midst of people who are lost so we will not convert them if we do not communicate God's imminence to them if we are not God's incarnation for them We can't love them if we aren't prepared to suffer for them. And we won't be prepared to suffer for them unless we have confidence in the grace of the sacraments. So I'm going to say those three again because they're all related to each other. We will not convert them if we don't communicate God's imminence to them, if we are not God's incarnation for them. And we can't love them if we aren't prepared to suffer for them. And finally, we won't be prepared to suffer for them unless we have confidence in the grace of the sacraments. St. Isaac Jokes, think about it. He could not have gone back into the North American continent if he wasn't assured that the grace of the sacraments would get him through. You know what he got when he went to Europe? He got a dispensation to say the Mass. Because without a forefinger and a thumb on each hand, he wasn't allowed. So from the time that the squaws chewed his fingers off and his thumbs off, he couldn't say Mass until Pope Urban gave him the dispensation to celebrate Mass with his three fingers remaining. But he took that dispensation and he went back and he said Mass every day. Confidence in the grace of the sacraments in order to convert the lost. So I'll say that again. We will not convert them if we do not communicate God's imminence to them if we are not God's incarnation for them. That is, living with them. We can't love them if we are not prepared to suffer for them. And we won't be prepared to suffer for them unless we have confidence in the grace of the sacraments. So I'll wrap up by saying, how does that confidence grow? This is how our confidence in the grace of the sacraments will grow, how our faith will increase. We must not think of ourselves as consumers of the sacraments but recipients of God's gift of himself you know people want to check off the boxes baptism penance First Holy Communion confirmation and very often uh, American Catholics that's about the times that they come to church when they're gonna get one of those and then of course they come back when they gotta get married then they depart again and then they come back when they gotta get their kid baptized right so this this is a mentality an orientation that sees the sacraments as things to be consumed. That's not a Christian orientation. The sacraments are gifts that we receive. God pouring himself out to us in order that we can pour ourselves out for others. We receive the sacraments not for us, Yes, they benefit us. But we receive the sacraments so that we can be administers of the sacraments. We receive in order that we can share. And the grace of the sacraments enables us then to share completely. We have to work for our neighbors to receive this preview of heaven. Because after all, uh, this is what all the sacraments point to. All the sacraments point to us to the time when there will be no sacraments, when we don't need faith and hope because we're standing before the throne of grace and we can see it with our own eyes. We have to work for our neighbors to receive this preview of heaven, really, uh, if we hope to reach heaven ourselves. The reality is that if we are consumers, this means we are turned inward But if we are recipients of a gift, in order that that gift might be shared, well, then our orientation is outward. It is towards those who need what we already have. Thank you. Father, thank you. What
0: is the balance between the low mass Catholic ghetto that my parents grew up in and the Kumbaya Catholicism watered down Catholicism that I grew up with in the suburbs that was assimilationist
1: that's a that, uh, someone lady just came up to me and, and uh, asked me, what does this look like well it it looks like uh, uprooting yourself and moving into the ghetto. What it looks like what i'm what I'm describing is going back into the very ghetto that we as Catholics fled, I mean I shouldn't say we, I was a Protestant, my family was Protestant for the last 475 years, but that the Catholics moved out of, uh, but you're not going in again as people looking to preserve what you have, but looking to share what you uh, may give and, and so, so it will require incredible sacrifices and it's something that that we're actually trying to do in Scranton. So, so we intentionally moved into one of the poorest, if not the poorest neighborhood in the city of Scranton. And we bought a church there. And my wife and I live in the rectory behind it with our children. And uh, we are one of very few married couples in the neighborhood. Certainly the only couple with eight children, nine children soon to be, that belong to both of us. Okay? I I, uh, I was at I, when I had our eighth child at the, uh, the hospital the nurse said you know what I really like about you father I said what he said she said I see three things in you that I never see altogether in one person in one couple I said what's that she said well first all of your kids are both of yours <laughs> second you're married and third you have a job <laughs> <laughs> so think about what this poor nurse sees on a daily basis, right? So uh, she's become jaded, and, 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 and uh, to be able to talk to us so openly in that way, uh, uh, she's she has a hunger for the truth. But the people that might be offering it to her uh, left a long time ago. So what I'm asking for is uh, people, and I've said this explicitly and, and uh, written about it in my newsletter and preached about it now for... Uh, going on 10 years uh, for Catholic families to move into our neighborhood and be an example show them another way they don't see another way the other people that could have been the other way have left so we have to go back in and show them another way and and uh, uh, I think that ultimately the, it's going to require that we also support each other economically because uh, we want to, to uh, not be beholden to these uh, wicked corporations. You see the number of corporations that signed on to the uh, uh, Supreme Court, they made a brief to the Supreme Court trying to get them to uh, overturn all of the marriage laws in the United States and introduce uh, same-sex unions to every state in the union, right? Uh, uh, Read the list of the corporations, unbelievable. So part of uh, remaining faithful Catholics and showing people another way is gonna have an economic component. Because to tell you the truth, I'm able to live the, the gospel of life uh, because I'm supported by some very generous people. But if you're working for Walmart, you can't have nine kids. Right? I mean seriously. If you're working for one of these, you, can't support, you can have them. You can't Exactly, you can have them, you can't support them. And, and, and so, so there's going to be, uh, one of the ways that we're going to promote the gospel of life uh, in these areas, is by saying we're going to support each other. I won't go to uh, Walmart for my groceries. I'll go to the I'll go to the butcher and the baker who live down the street. So there's going to there's going to be an intentional aspect to this of living out a a, a Catholic life that enables us to share it with people next to us.
0: You opened with the anima Christi, and it says, uh, uh, body, uh, "Blood of Christ inebriate me." And then you talked about inebriation being the opposite of communion. So I was wondering if you could just uh, uh, explain the difference a little bit more.
1: When I, when I meant uh, inebriation, I, I shouldn't have used that word. I should have used intoxication. I shouldn't have, I, I, when I said inebriated, I was trying to use a proper way and not talk about getting wasted and you know, plowed and everything, right? So I really should have said intoxicated. Toxin meaning something that poisons me, all right? So inebriation is not poisonous. So, so I don't mean to say that at all. What I meant was uh, drunkenness ultimately is about a toxin that poisons me or as elation lifts me up.
0: Father, we're getting a question from Dan in Concord, New Hampshire, who says there's a beautiful French immigrant-built church in his hometown uh, that's closing. And he said, how can I save it for its witness to the faith?
1: That's closing? That's, that's one of the oldest personal parishes in the United States. That's terrible. The way that we preserve these parishes is by allowing them, again, to become the center of the community's life. Uh, The church where I live, the the church uh, which I serve, has a uh, parish hall that's completely disconnected from the church. You can't get from the church into the parish hall in the building, you have to go outside the building. Why is that? Well, because St. Joseph's Church was the center of the Lithuanian community in Scranton. This is where the uh, uh, people that weren't even necessarily Catholic Lithuanians. Uh, went and had community events because it was uh, the center of life. And so the church, uh, the, the one real positive thing about the Catholic ghetto is that the, the uh, church was the center of the community's life. And so if we treat the church as something that we simply do on Sunday or something that is tangential to our lives, well, uh, then, then of course the churches are going to close. But... And when I say community, I don't mean ephemeral community. I mean concrete community. So move back into the neighborhood. Get your Catholic friends to move back into the neighborhood and get yeah, start an ordinary community. One of the, <laughs> one of the uh, beautiful things about the personal ordinary is that our jurisdiction completely overlaps Canada and the United States. So we are going to be able to uh, form communities wherever... Uh, there is a demand. So if we have a group uh, large enough to, say, support a priest, uh, we can uh, go into a place and reopen one of these closed churches. Now, it's going to be a church for converts. It's not going to be a church to, uh, uh, to, to preserve uh, the heritage of a, of a Latin Rite community that has dissipated. Uh, even a personal community that's dissipated. It's going to be a church uh, bent on evangelization. And so uh, we have our own traditions and so forth, but we're able to reconcile to the church anybody that comes to us, anybody that we baptize becomes a member of our ordinariate. In fact, uh, our parish has been blessed to be able to reconcile more people to the church in the last 10 years than any other parish in the Diocese of Scranton. Now we're the smallest parish, <laughs> but uh, we've been able to reconcile more uh, people. So if we have communities like that that can establish themselves in locales, like that in Concord, uh, then then uh, the church could be purchased by perhaps a different Catholic jurisdiction. And I could see religious orders doing this. I mean, uh, religious orders could purchase the church, whether it be the Dominicans or, or, or the Franciscans, and then build a community around the church where the people actually live near the church. Uh, and And... And by living near the church, you're also living near the people that that live next to it. I know the church that he's talking about in Concord. It's in a neighborhood. It's in a neighborhood, and it's not uh, depopulated. So here's yet another church closing in the Northeast that has people near it. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, yes, I just had a question about the First Amendment to the Constitution as opposed to Concordat. You know, some other countries have Concordats. We have a First Amendment. So I believe a Concordat of the Vatican would be illegal here. Which do you prefer? What do you think is most effective? This was the whole, you're, you're bringing up, you obviously know something about Americanism. Uh, this is, the church prefers, the church prefers that the faith be preferred by the government. That's the reality. So uh, convert our nation to Catholicism and Catholicism would be preferred by the government. That's what I prefer. That's the model of the church. That isn't me. That's not Eric Bergman. That's the church. All right? So we don't want uh, the separation of church and state, which which, uh, uh, they try to make clearer and clearer, that is, begin to favor atheism begin to favor no religion or be begin to favor irreligion uh, the church prefers that we favor Catholicism. That the state not that doesn't mean that uh, uh, there's any coercion involved because remember when we talk about the sacraments it's always voluntary but the church does say that uh, uh, the laws uh, the positive laws ought to reflect the natural law and the moral law. right? Those positive laws that contravene the natural law or the moral law uh, aren't real laws at all. They aren't laws, right? So the, church, so the state can say, and the Supreme Court very well may this summer, uh, say that every state in the union has to recognize, uh, quote-unquote, same-sex marriage. But you don't. And I won't, right? Because it isn't Real, it, 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 the the law that the state is making does not conform, does not comport with the law from God. So, uh, when we when the church says that she prefers that the uh, faith be preferred, she's simply saying that the laws of the state ought to reflect reality. We are living in a, in a nation that has allowed unreality to be legislated to say that a child when the science is settled that uh, that that uh, life begins at conception i mean every scientist anybody worth his salt will tell you that's true life begins at conception and yet we can legislate that you're allowed to kill the baby that that's not that that that's not reality that that we can kill the baby until 9 months as long as it's in the womb but once it comes out suddenly it's human woo, and he's protected by law you can't kill that baby that that that's not that's not that's like living in a it's like an alternate universe. So when, I'm, when we talk about the, uh, what the church prefers, uh, uh, we're saying that we want the church, we want the state to conform its laws to, to, to the truth. And, and so uh, the, 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 this sort of strict separation of church and state would, u- would, would ultimately go away. Convert the nation to Catholicism, we overturn the First Amendment.
0: I'm a recent convert out of the Evangelical Church, so I come from a very Evangelical background, and you're speaking about evangelism as, uh, as a Catholic, but I wanted to ask you to talk about um, how a family can act in the neighborhood as a domestic church to begin to repopulate that place, to refill that building, that um, your family, for example, saying you're a married couple with eight, now nine children in a community where you stand alone, I mean our first role is in the home to represent in my community we're one of only three Catholic families in the whole 100 you know 100 house neighborhood so it has to begin in the home and the neighborhood where you already are doesn't it i mean
1: it, it yeah, absolutely it can but you're you're correct that the domestic church is the building block of the society for evangelization but what the church has generally done historically has pulled its resources so uh Uh, your neighborhood might in fact be a target of an evangelization program that I've described, so we'd want to invite more Catholic families to move into your neighborhood or invite you to get out and go to a place where you could be better where your gifts could be better uh, used, and that God would determine that and and, uh, uh, you'd have to do a discernment, and every discernment for one's vocation is undertaken within the context of the church, so you wouldn't do this on your own this would be a program that was undertaken by the church altogether, but uh, the one way, if, you're, if, if, if there's no community available for you to move to, and uh, how do we begin the work of evangelization uh, simply in our own domestic <laughs> church right this minute? <laughs> begin living humana vitae. All right, uh, throw away uh, all your contraceptive devices and begin to uh, begin to be open to the gift of human life. And when you have a family of eight children, you get noticed
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, people begin to ask you questions and you get to answer them and people get begin to say really rude things to you and you get to answer them every 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 conversation begins an opportunity for evangelization and you'd be surprised how many people want that uh, we get two comments very frequently. Boy, I came from a family like that. Now I have two kids. Or, I didn't have any. Uh, or, all the time we hear, boy, I wish I'd had more children. All right. So there's a hunger there. Uh, so if you simply have, how many children do you have? Three now. Three now. You have three, four more. You,
0: <laughs>
1: now, if God wills. If God wills, if God wills, and you have three or four more, you're going to stand out in your neighborhood.
0: Thank you so much, Father Bergman. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. Or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.